Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. And I've titled this morning's message, The Cost and the Courage to Follow Christ. The Cost and the Courage to Follow Christ. Did you know it'll cost you something to follow Jesus? Even in the United States of America, it'll cost you something to follow Jesus. Verse 14 of chapter 6, we read about John the Baptist. Now, you know, it's interesting. Jesus, last week, sends his disciples or his apostles out on mission to Israel. And in verse 13, we see that they are preaching repentance in verse 12 and then Casting out demons and healing sick people in verse 13. They're doing the work of the kingdom. And then boom, all of a sudden we get this story about John the Baptist. We're going to consider why that story is where it is this morning. Would you hear with me the word of God? Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. Now whose name? Jesus' name, right? Because they're... The apostles are preaching and Jesus is doing good works. And so King Herod receives word of what Jesus is doing and what his apostles are doing in his name. His name, Jesus' name, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he's Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias uh, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and the king said to this girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us see the relationship of the story of John the Baptist to the mission 
of your disciples in the world. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John the Baptist, right in the middle of the story of the successful mission trip of Jesus' apostles. Last week, we considered that Jesus' instructions to His disciples mean that dependence upon God must be the posture of our lives, it must be the proclamation of our lips, and it must be the power for advancing Christ's kingdom. As the disciples depend on God, they can have confidence that King Jesus will be well represented and that He is always in control. We have that confidence. And yet, John the Baptist... The greatest man born among women is beheaded. Suddenly, we get the account of John the Baptist, a man whose faithfulness to God led him to confront a vile and wicked and power-hungry family. Did you know God might call the church in our day to confront the vile, wicked, power-hungry people that oppress in our country, even in these United States of America? You see, Edwards writes, the Herodian family tree was as twisted as the trunk of an olive tree. And this Herod was not really a king, by the way. He was the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, but he liked to think of himself as a king. And so Mark uses that title in a mocking way. Mark is saying, King Herod. John points the way to the true king by speaking God's truth to a man who only thinks of himself as a king. Just how bad was the situation in Herod's family? Herod had persuaded Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Herod Philip, son of Herod the Great's third wife, Miriam, the second, to divorce her husband and marry him. And in order for that to happen... Herod had to jilt his own wife, the daughter of Aretas, king of Nabatea, east of the Dead Sea. That's pretty messed up. You know, we all like to think of ourselves as courageous. When I used to have time, a little more time, and go play golf, I used to go on a men's golf retreat down on the beach in late November, just when the rates changed, and the weather usually did too. And so the shorts that I took were usually insufficient. It'd be 42 degrees on the golf course. But we'd get out there, and about the third hole, I'd shank one, and then I'd shank another one, and then I'd be 200 yards from the green with a big old pond of water in front of the green, and my dad would say, you probably better lay up. And I'd say, Dad, we didn't drive all this way to lay up. And so I'd get out that monster three-wood, and I'd hit it. And about one out of 100 times, I'd actually have a successful hit, which is why you keep doing that, right? And we would call that courageous, man. He was courageous. But John displays for us a whole nother level of courageous. We, we think going to Walmart on a Saturday is courageous. But John is, is at Herod's. He's, he's there with Herod. And he says to him in the middle of this mess, God's law stands against you. This is not a politically convenient thing for John to say. He could have just let live and let live. He could, have, he could have just kept his powder dry. But instead, he speaks the truth of God in a place where it's very inconvenient for him to do so. You see, this is a courage that the world would call foolish. 
And it's a courage that I'm afraid is the church in America is slowly, gently being rocked to sleep that we would increasingly call foolish. Because there's things our country allows now that 25 years ago we just said it would never happen in our country. And now we wake up and turn on the news and say, well, I guess it's just a character flaw. Hello, church. John says to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. But you see, power and lust and instant gratification were Herod's laws. And John's courage cost him his head. Mark wants the church to understand that confidence in the victory that's going to come through Christ does not absolve us of our need to have the courage to stand up and say or do whatever our king's commission requires. It's time for the church to remember that though the king is victorious, we got to do something about it. When I was a track guy at Northside High School, Every single year, our coach started this way. We'd sit out there on the pad where they did the high jump, and he'd make this big speech, and he'd get out his piece of paper, and he'd go down every event, and he would conclude. He'd say, guys, on paper, we are the best track team in the Blue Ridge District. And then he'd wad that piece of paper up, and he'd throw it down, and he'd step on it, and he said, that's what that paper's worth. We got to work. In church, we need... To get to work proclaiming the law of God in our community, in our country. We need to stand up for the God who stood for us. You see, when we make known the name of Jesus and do His work in the world, which is what we see happens in verse 14, Jesus' name is being known, His miraculous powers are being known, and it gets Herod's attention. When that happens, we must expect people to wrestle with the identity of Jesus and the reality of their sin. Verse 14 through 16. Second, we must expect some are going to try to stop us. Third, we must expect some are going to try to destroy us. And finally, we must have confidence through Christ's resurrection no matter the cost. First, we must expect people to wrestle with the identity of Jesus and the reality of their sin. When we get to verse 14, John the Baptist has already died. And then a man whose name is Jesus emerges and his preaching and his miracles are even greater than John's were. Do you see what's happening here? As people hear about Jesus, they are confronted with his name. The name of Jesus represents his authority and his authority is absolute over everyone's life. His name became well known. And church, that's our job. Our job is to make well known the name of Jesus in the Roanoke Valley, across the globe, across our country, and we are called to make known the name of Jesus without distinction, even when it is dangerous. Even when we are called to speak truth to power. Even when declaring the name of Jesus conflicts with what is politically expedient or convenient, or it means we have to oppose our political party, even when, when it leads us to risk losing whatever power we think we have, whatever position we think we have, even when it calls us to risk losing our very lives. People <clears throat> speculate that Jesus may be John risen from the dead, or Elijah, Malachi's promised forerunner of the Lord, or perhaps another Hebrew prophet of old, but guilt-ridden Herod has no doubt. John, whom I beheaded, has risen. 
And while Jesus is not John risen from the dead, he is a reminder of the sin that Herod perpetuated against Herod and his sin is resurrected before him. The presence of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the authoritative authoritative power of Jesus proclaimed in our community, in our church, and in this world will cause the sins of people to be raised up before them and they will have to confront the reality of their sin because that's what the name of Jesus does in people's lives. Herod is terrified. His great sin deserves to be avenged and he knows it. Herod's speculation, by the way, about Jesus is much closer to the truth than is the skepticism of Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. Jesus is not John risen from the dead. He is, however, the fulfillment of what John preached. He is the Son of God who will rise from the dead to take care of our sin by taking our sin upon Himself. He became sin for us. Herod has a high opinion of Jesus, church, but a high opinion of Jesus is not the same thing as having saving faith in Jesus. It's not enough for the world to think that Jesus is a good teacher, a good man, or a good prophet. You've got to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus in your life. Christ's promise is not that everyone will repent But that wherever His name is made known, church, people will have to confront their sin and its consequences. Our job is to make known the name of Jesus. To Herod, Jesus seems to be John raised from the dead. What if, to the watching world, the church seemed to be Jesus raised? From the dead. What if we so went in His power? What if we so went with confidence in His resurrecting power that wherever He took us, we proclaimed the name of Jesus, trusting that no matter what it cost us, He has us for all eternity. We must understand that when people confront the name of Jesus, they're going to have to deal with their sin. But secondly, we must expect that some are going to try to stop us. Beginning in verse 17, Mark tells the story of how John's head ends up on a platter. John spoke truth to power, and it was a truth that hit home, but his guilt does not lead him to repent, but instead to imprison John. Even though Herod wants to kill John, he doesn't, because as Matthew tells us, John had become popular with the people. And then Mark adds this, Herod was afraid of John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Have you ever had somebody like that in your life? You don't know what to make of them. They're kind of curious, kind of interesting. They also frustrate you a little bit. That's John in Herod's life. John is initially compelling to Herod. He enjoys the banter with the holy man, perhaps he even enjoys having John around as the token godly person in his life, figuring that having a do-gooder around might afford him some sort of divine protection. Have you ever been that in somebody's life? They're like, here's my token Christian in the car, now nothing bad's going to happen to me. That's kind of what Herod is doing with John. But then one day, John opens his big fat mouth and lowers the boom and says, what you're doing is against God's law. And then everybody in the family is like, see, I told you, Herod. And then the whole power structure in the family is risking to be compromised because somebody dared to stand up and speak the truth of God into the situation. 
So John lowers the boom and he calls out Herod for how he has abused his position and fed his lust in defiance of God's law. And so John lands in prison. Did you know, church, we should not be surprised that the world is actively trying to shut the mouths and tie the hands of Christians? We should not be surprised. I fully expect, and if I'm wrong, then praise be to God, but I fully expect that in my lifetime that I will either pay a fine or be in prison for preaching the gospel in these United States of America. And if you think I'm wrong, just keep watching the cultural trends. It's coming. It's happening in our schools where they're making our bathrooms where it doesn't matter which gender you are. They're doing it by attacking the family. They're doing it through our tax code. They're saying that churches very soon may not even be able to have a tax-preferred status when it comes to tax-deductible giving, or if we want to keep the tax-deductible giving, then we'll have to give up our ability to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and these other sorts of things. It's coming in our country. And the question is, will we take a stand for truth, even if it costs us something? Is this on this morning? Y'all here? Okay. You see, in this life, the Christian is nowhere promised prosperity. We are only promised persecution. When we follow our King's commission, He will lead us to times and places where we have to speak hard truths in hard places, knowing we may lose for a moment, but Christ is surely worth it. Following Jesus means more than having the courage to have friends who are unbelievers. That's a good start. It also means having the courage to speak truth, even if it might mean losing the very friends and the influence that we've worked so hard to win. It means God is concerned for the character of earthly leaders, no matter what party they represent or what momentary advantages that we think we derive from being silent. We must not forget, church, that living as a Christian in the world with corrupt and compromised leaders is not about the art of the deal, but it's about living for Christ and speaking the truth, no matter how unfavorable the terms are for us. Because at the, when the eastern sky is broken, broken in a twinkling of an eye, the terms which seem unfavorable now will be forever reversed when Christ comes. There is where our hope is. Our hope is not derived on Capitol Hill. It's derived from Calvary's Hill. And Christ the King is risen and He's coming again for those who, like John, pursue Him with a reckless Foolish abandon, believing that God is good on His promise. Following Jesus means we must put God's truth before political expediency and self-preservation. All John had to do was be quiet. We must speak and live God's truth even though the world will surely try to stop us. But thirdly, we must expect some they aren't just going to throw us in prison, church. There's going to be some that want to downright kill us. They want to destroy us. Herod is torn over what to do with John. And Herod's indecision becomes John's imprisonment. But indecision cannot stand forever. You can't just leave John in prison forever. There's going to come a day of reckoning. Look at verse 21. A strategic day comes. A day of opportunity. In verse 19, we learn... Herodias has a grudge against John and wants to kill him. As T.W. Manson writes, Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. Beginning in verse 21, we see how far Herodias will go to ensure John no longer has 
is no longer around to testify against her wicked marriage. Herod throws himself a birthday party, and the region's top brass are there. Danny Aiken summarizes what happens next. Herodias' daughter enters a room filled with drunken men. There's little doubt she was sent by her mother. Most likely she was only in her teens. The daughter of Herodias and Philip, she was also Herod's stepdaughter and niece. This is how low Herodias stooped. She cared more about the head of John the Baptist than the dignity and the reputation of her own daughter. And it worked. Herod promises up to half his kingdom, which is a hyperbole because Herod didn't have the authority under the Roman government to give away even an acre of land. But he's in a hyperbolic fashion saying, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And Herodias sends her daughter back in to request John's head. Do you notice that the daughter is the one doing the dirty work? And have you noticed in the United States of America and around the world that that's what we do? We get our kids to do our dirty work? We slaughter them at Planned Parenthood. We throw them into public schools and we socially experiment on our kids. Here, try this out. But it's free. The education is free or so we think. And so we send them off to the public school and we don't interact with our kids' lives and what they're teaching them in sex education classes and what they're showing them in the classroom. And we, we get disengaged as parents. And as long as our kids are good on the ball field or good at sports or good at plays and good at acting, we are disengaged, church, at what the world is trying to do with our children. The world is trying to use our children to do the world's dirty work and pry us away. From God, who has a holy standard, to which every single one of us must give an account. John the Baptist dies a brutal death by doing what God has called him to do. Think about that sentence. John the Baptist dies a brutal death by doing what God has called him to do. Do, do we believe that that still happens, church? Do we understand that when we share the gospel with our children that God is calling them to a costly faith? Or do we believe the gospel that says if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have a wonderful job, a wonderful car, a wonderful wife, wonderful kids, a wonderful house, and everything's just going to be so peachy king wonderful. Because John the Baptist, the greatest man born among women born among women, gives his head for the gospel. Do we understand that we're in a war church? Do we understand that we are soldiers of the cross? And that our vindication and our victory comes when Jesus comes again? The vindication we're looking for is not the vindication that comes in this life. Because if our reward is in this life, then our reward is over. Hope you enjoy it while you have it. Hope you enjoy your nice stuff while you have it, because that's all you get. But when you get Jesus, and He gives you life everlasting, and you spend your life for His glory, and He comes in a glorious return, that is when we get our vindication, when Christ comes again. Proclaiming Christ's church is not smooth sailing. 
It is wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. The battle for the hearts and the men of men and women goes from the poorest of the poor to the President of the United States. Being a Christian in the world is not easy. It's a, world of et- world, it's a war of eternal consequence. And there is a satanic spirit at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience, which means that the world does not play fair. We should not be surprised, church, that our own country is violating its own constitution. The world does not play fair. We should not be surprised by the ungodliness of the ungodly. The world's grudge against God, just like Herodias's grudge against God, it's a, it's a grudge against God's claim over their lives, and they will do whatever they have to do To oppose us as we proclaim the name and the absolute authority of Christ in their lives. In verse 26, Herod is very sorry about what the circumstances are. But he's not sorry enough to repent of his sin and humble himself. Instead, he would rather maintain the appearance of confidence than humble himself before others. Here's the lesson, church. We must not be like Herod. Driven by the fear of men. Why why does he go ahead and kill John? Well, there's a lot of people around and they're going to see that I violated my word. We must not be driven by the fear of men. Instead, we must be like John. Driven by faithfulness to God no matter what it costs us. And to do this, church, we must finally have courage through confidence in Christ's resurrection no matter what it costs us in this life. Mark presents us with a great contrast between verses 29 and 30. In verse 29, in anticipation of the fact that God would raise John from the dead, His disciples do what? They bury Him in a tomb. This is a foreshadowing of the fact that there's going to be some more disciples that bury a greater prophet in a tomb. Praise God, He raises on the third day. But in verse 29, the beheaded body of the greatest man born among women is placed in a tomb. And then what happens in verse 30? The disciples come back and give a mission update to the Messiah. In two verses, we've got a burial and a business meeting. The contrast could not be more stark, and it is intentional. By the way, at tonight's business meeting, if we're able to handle our business affairs in a relatively uh, brief fashion, we're also going to hear from our Puerto Rico team. We're going to have an opportunity for testimony, so we're going to have a little report of what God did in Puerto Rico tonight following uh, our time of business. But the contrast in these two verses could not be more stark, and it is intentional, because the kingdom will not advance primarily through business meetings, church, as important as they are. The kingdom will advance through the confident and costly sacrifice of people pointing the way to Jesus. The story of John is a foreboding foreshadowing of the cross that awaits Jesus and the death that awaits His disciples. As Edwards writes, Mark sandwiches the brutal account of the martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and their return. Why does he do that? Why in the middle of this story does he drop the story of John the Baptist, get this, to impress upon us the cost of discipleship? Oh, the disciples come back and they're like, it was great. 
We anointed people and they were healed. We cast out demons. We preached repentance. It was awesome. And Mark's like, yeah. But the call to follow Christ is a, is a call to die. Listen to what John Edwards writes about John's courage. Why did John even bother with a family characterized by such rivalry and wickedness? Shouldn't he have played his hand in a more important game? John, however, was a prophet without price, whose thundering call exposed unrighteousness in any quarter. There were no sacred cows in his herds. He did not read the polls before speaking and acting. He protected no special interests, nor did he predicate what he said and did on chances of success. John's was a costly courage. Church, this is not about laying up on a golf course or going for it. It's about laying down our lives for the sake of our King, trusting that He will raise them up. The reality of the resurrection should make us fearless, church. John displays the sort of costly courage which, of which Jesus is worthy. The world says to us, don't poke the bear, cut your losses, live to fight another day, live and let live as if what we do is what is sustaining us. But it is what God has done for us that sustains us, which allows us to say as we come to the table this morning, to live is Christ, but to die is great gain. You see, church, our victory has been secured through Christ's death and resurrection. And the mission that God has enlisted us in advances in the exact same way. As we are willing to die, trusting that He will raise us up in the last days. Joyfully living and giving our lives for Him. Jesus demands. And He is worthy of my life, my soul. My all. Because in Christ Jesus, we've received all we need. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we thank you that you went all the way to the cross for us. We thank you for the promise of your word that you are coming again. And that if Christ is risen and the Spirit of God has convicted us of our sins and drawn us up into salvation in Christ, that the resurrection life that we will have physically one day, we already have now, and it gives us the ability to be courageous in a way that defies the wisdom of the world. God, I pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning, as the deacons make preparation to serve the Lord's Supper this morning, that we would come and we would come asking you to renew our boldness to live for Jesus no matter what it should cost us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.